Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trend shaping the way we live and work. Today's guest is Matt Gerber. Since he was a teenager, Matt has been globetrotting as a volunteer. This has led him to do humanitarian work in some of the most vulnerable places in the world after natural disasters and even during wartime. In our discussion, we talk about how he leads during these chaotic relief efforts and how his leadership abilities have developed from two decades of volunteering. We also discuss his day job in the corporate social responsibility space, and we even have a candid discussion about mental health. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by Inspire Software. At Inspire, they're committed to helping you achieve superior business results by improving performance, retention, and engagement. Learn more at InspireSoftware.com. Matt, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Glad to be here, Don. Let's start off by talking about your volunteer work. You've been doing this for 20 years. Where have you gone during some of your volunteer opportunities? I've been doing disaster relief volunteering for 20 years, but I've been doing volunteering in other forms of capacities for even longer than that. I first time I ever traveled overseas was with Rotary. I was an exchange student. They took this skinny farm boy from Oregon and gave me my first opportunity to travel abroad. I went and lived in Australia and was hosted by this Rotary Club, which for people that aren't familiar with them, it's these professional groups in the communities which are dedicated to volunteering. So I was living with these different families and every week attending their meetings and participating in service projects out in the community. And I'll be honest, after a year of being immersed in that, coming back to my little town in Oregon, I actually felt this real emptiness. I was like, I need to keep volunteering because this is just one of the most fulfilling, amazing things I can do to feel part of community. Where are some of the other places you have gone now as an adult? Places that are some kind of rough places like Pakistan, Syria, Ethiopia, Ukraine, most recently, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Colombia, Philippines, Indonesia after disasters, Eastern India after the tsunami. Basically, when the news comes on and there's a disaster or conflict, there's some part of me that has this itch, this desire to go help people in whatever ways they can. Like, how do you go and turn on the lights for somebody that has no light? or help provide shelter for a family that is not going to have a roof over their head for the foreseeable future. You say you you feel this itch. I think a lot of us feel this itch, but you actually scratch it. So when you are scratching it, what are you doing in these places? And maybe you could talk about Ukraine because that was your most recent trip. That's been in the news a lot lately. You went there very early on during the war. Tell us what you did there. You know, it's interesting. There's a lot of different kinds of disaster relief volunteering. Different organizations are there to help create supply lines for food, shelter box that I'm on the board of. We help provide emergency shelter to keep families together through conflicts and natural disasters. What I found is the way that I can bring the most value when I'm volunteering, whether it was in Indonesia after the 2018 Palo Indonesia earthquake and tsunami, or even earlier this year in Ukraine, is because I have 20 years of pre-existing relationships with different NGOs, many of which are 
some combination are on the ground, I'm actually able to be a connector and to have a bird's eye view of who might have a surplus or need of different types of resources. So, for example, somebody might have a huge empty warehouse that is sitting unused and somebody else might have an overflowing warehouse, but drums of petrol where they could use to fill trucks to, to move it, but maybe they don't have transportation, somebody else does. And that's actually a real example from Ukraine where because I landed there, or rather crossed the border there, and had these long existing relationships with these organizations like Gift of the Givers from South Africa, uh, Polish Humanitarian Action, obviously from Poland, Rotary International, I was able to make introductions and be able to share the needs with each other so they could actually leverage each other's resources to achieve their missions and it's it's a very i've never found a label for this type of volunteering but it's one of the ways that i find i can bring the most value on the ground i didn't know that you were on the board of shelterbox so maybe you could talk a little bit about the work that shelterbox does and if i if my notes are correct it was this shelterbox was nominated for a nobel peace prize is that correct that's right. In 2018 and 2019, specifically for our work in Syria, Somalia, and Lake Chad Basin, which is in West Africa. So if you can imagine those big green totes that you probably put your Christmas ornaments in every year to store it in your garage, one of those big totes can actually hold all the supplies you need for housing to keep a family together for six months or even longer. So within these boxes, we can put a tent, cooking supplies, solar power light, which can plug a USB device in. There's dishes, there's water filtration, everything they need to partner with other local NGOs who are doing what they're best at, right? Which is delivering food or water. And so we go in and we'll provide sometimes thousands of units of these, either shelter kits, shelter kits to build homes, temporary housing, or the tents themselves. And these tents, have been specially designed and redesigned over the course of 21 years that we've been using them at Shelterbox, so they can be customized. So if this is a winter crisis, so maybe we're worried about winter exposure in Syria, these can be reinforced with an extra layer of insulation. Or if it's somewhere tropical, we can know that we've got the necessary mosquito netting or that's going to be a breathable tent structure as well. And so that's what we do at Shelterbox. Literally, our whole mission is just keeping families together. Why do you do this, Matt? I think what I've realized most recently is that it is the most honest way that I can show up in the world. What does that even mean? The most honest way. When you're standing in the rubble of somebody's home who's, who their entire life has been obliterated by an earthquake and tsunami and liquefaction, which is where like the earth turns into quicksand and swallows the cars and houses and people inside. Or if you're on the playground of an orphanage and little kids are crawling all over you like a jungle gym, there is no job titles. There's no bank accounts and 401k. There's no, doesn't matter how nice or big your apartment or house is, what kind of car you drive. You're literally just there in the purest form of your humanity. And you see yourself through their eyes. And so that's, I guess that's what I mean when I say it's the most honest way I show up in the world, because it's stripping away all of these like externalities and social media is not real. But like when I'm like holding one of these little kids or like helping somebody pull their sewing machine out of their destroyed house, that's that to me is the realest real life that I can experience. We are talking about leadership in season eight of 12 Geniuses, this podcast. And I want to ask you about 
how your leadership capability or what leadership capabilities you're using when you're volunteering? First thing, anytime I've led teams, I've always encouraged everybody on my team to join community or civic organizations, whether it's Rotary or something else, because I feel like this is one of the most important things that we can do professionally is to keep one foot in the outside world and one foot in our professional development and our day jobs. And for me, there has been a parallel path where there's, I essentially, I can produce for you two different resumes, like my nonprofit and volunteer resume, and then my day job, paying job, Matt resume. And both of them show increasing levels of responsibility, skills building, leadership capacity, and impact. And what's really fun is when I put these together, I see directly how one informed the other and how each one unlocked a new door and new experience and new opportunity for growth in the opposite. So the volunteer work, maybe through my board service, I was able to experience what it's like to be media trained and what it's like to deal, to develop executive presence through a lot of public speaking. And that came back and informed my next job advance. And then I was hired to start corporate foundations or CSR departments, whatever it is. And then the, that experience professionally helps me to go back and, for example, serve on the shelter box board and bring a whole different level of value to these nonprofit boards I'm on now than I did 20 years ago. And that's really exciting is this, I don't see them as separate. I see them as completely, I wanna find a better word than synergistic, but, but I see each one feeding the leadership potential of the other and making me a more well-rounded human. It's such a good point because it, in my own personal life, the volunteer work that I've done, which is primarily mentoring young people, I've been doing that for 30 years now, it really has complemented my professional work. And in fact, the leadership capabilities that I learned volunteering have prepared me for my leadership opportunities as a professional. And when I think about the work that you're doing going into these countries where there may not be communication, where you may not speak the language, any disruption at the office is child's play in comparison to the situation, the unknowns that you're facing when you land on the ground in Syria or Pakistan or Ukraine, for example. You know, it's interesting you mentioned mentorship. Don, I, you and I have known each other for more than 10 years. I know that you've been a mentor and been mentored for this is a really important part of your personal journey. I would actually flip the question back to you and say, what you've learned by being a mentor out in the community, especially when you're running your company, did that impact your leadership style on how you dealt with your team? Yeah, it did. I've made a lot of mistakes, don't get me wrong, but certainly a lot of the people I was mentor that I've mentored come from a different economic background than I have, a different race than I have. They're younger than I am. And so mentoring has it helped me build a lot of empathy. And empathy is one of those things that we're born with some empathy, but it's a muscle that you can exercise and you can build. So that's probably the biggest thing. And then as I was learning to be a leader, oftentimes I would use the tools of motivation on the young people I was mentoring. So for example, recognition and building a sense of purpose or meaning or even development, I would start to use these tools on them to hone them for when I got my own team. And I started out as a, an entrepreneur, but it was just three partners. 
and until we we hired a staff. And so I had a few years to kind of hone these leadership capabilities with my mentees. And that was extraordinarily helpful for me as a leader for, to develop into a leader. You know, that's a really good point. There's, I know there's people from all different backgrounds and all different stages of their careers that listen to 12 Geniuses. And there might be people listening who are individual contributors right now and don't have their own teams. And volunteer work is, to your point, whether it's mentoring or leading a group of other volunteers, is a really great way to build that leadership capacity that maybe they don't have an opportunity to build those skills in their day job. Managers have direct reports. Leaders don't necessarily have to have direct reports and you just need followers. And so I would contend that you can be a leader as an individual contributor, as a solopreneur. You just have to set a good example and people will start to, people will follow you and people will mimic your behavior. And, and, and volunteering, I think, is a great great way to start honing these skills. And that's why I wanted to have this conversation. What advice do you have for a future or current leader who wants to volunteer and scratch this itch? Because I do believe that a lot of us have this itch to help, but we just kind of think, oh, where do we get started? This is, I'm not going to be able to do that. I can't go to Syria or I can't go to Ethiopia, but we could maybe go to Jackson, Mississippi, or we could go to another place in the country, or there may be ways in which we can help right here in our offices. What advice do you have for them? I would say first, you have to know what the itch is that you want to scratch. There's some people that that are looking for community. There's some people that are very curious about what else they can do in life. Maybe they're a teacher or an accountant or a housewife. And they're like, I just want to know what else I'm capable of. And so once you identify the itch that you want to scratch, I think that's where the adventure begins. There's an interesting study that came out. Uh, they were studying Rotary Clubs, and they said that the number one reason people join is because of a desire for professional network. Six months later, when they surveyed those same individuals, they found that the reason why people stayed was for the community. So when we think about volunteering, and a lot of times we think about it as us, as an individual going out and doing something, but I can tell you we'd never do that in a vacuum unless we're like maybe with our dog and picking up trash in the park. All the volunteering I do is always as a port, as a part of a bigger or larger community. And that is what is, you want to learn about diversity, equity, and inclusion, go out in the community and volunteer in an environment that you have no control over. And you get to see cross sections of society and you get to interact with different types of people. This is some of the most beautiful parts of volunteering. One of the roles that, you play, at least from my perspective, and I we have known each other for a long time, and I follow you on social media, and you do send clips from time to time when you are in these places. And one of these roles is as an ambassador, an ambassador for this country, and it's an informal ambassador, but you do connect with people, uh, particularly children and the people listening to this won't know this, but you are a giant of a man. You're a six foot six inch bodybuilder with biceps the size of my thighs, probably bigger. And these children are drawn to you. They're drawn to your smile. And I just wonder this ambassadorship, this informal ambassadorship that you you live, what, what sorts of feelings do you get from that in the moment, but also as you're ending an assignment, knowing that you have helped 
change lives, knowing that you have helped get people through these most difficult times, maybe the most difficult times of their lives. It's true. We do show up at usually the worst moment of people's lives. And I can tell you the feeling I have when I leave an assignment or a volunteer trip is always the same, which is I haven't been here long enough, right? I get to go back to my life in Dallas, Texas, and back to first world running water and electricity and cell phone and internet and video conferences. And I get to do all of that. And these people who I have cared for and who have cared for me are still there in that situation. And there's a, there's a real strong sense of grief and longing that I have every time I leave a place. And so it's almost like a little part of my heart is in each one of those places. And I always have a longing to go back. So there's many places that I go back to again and again and again, which is places like Nicaragua and Rwanda, Ethiopia. Like these are, I wish I could go back to everywhere. Pakistan is one of the, the most kindest cultures I've ever encountered in my life. And when I'm there, and it's interesting what you mentioned about ambassadorship, because I feel you, you see people that are listening to this, they don't see that I'm wearing a shirt and it says on one side rotary and on the other side shelter box. And I take this ambassadorship really, I take it to heart. And when I'm traveling anywhere, even if it's not for a volunteer trip, I'm oftentimes seen wearing one of these shirts because I want to be able to have the opportunity to spark conversation with people about what these organizations do and about how easy it is to volunteer and to be aware and to find other organizations outside of these that they can engage in. And so I'd love to, I'd love to think and encourage that not just me, but you and anybody who's listening, that we can all be ambassadors. Not we think about ambassadorship in terms of nationality, but we're also ambassadors of ideas. And so what I love about this podcast, Don, and why it was such an honor for me to be invited to come and share this time with you, is because 12 Geniuses is. Uh, not just about the thought leaders and their expertise that you're bringing on. It is about an ethos of leadership that you're presenting to your listeners. This ethos of curiosity, which I think is a, is like a leadership superpower. And I feel like you are an ambassador of curiosity, and that encourages us to be ambassadors. They're looking at us as examples and role models of how to act and how to conduct ourselves. That's why I always remind people, kindness, being kind is free. It costs you nothing to be kind to people, whether it's the checker at the grocery store or somebody in your neighborhood, just volunteerism about being kind. Two authors who I know quite well, leadership experts, Doug Lennick and Fred Keel wrote the book, Moral Intelligence. And in the book, they talk about moral leaders as espousing the principles of forgiveness, responsibility, integrity, and compassion. And I see you as a morally intelligent person, a moral leader. And I wonder what those principles mean to you, forgiveness, responsibility, integrity, and compassion. Because in your work, these seem to be coming through. And I wonder if you're conscious of that or if that's just embedded in who you are. Yeah, I think that these are, I would say that these are the attributes of a moral leader. I think that they're all imperative. And when I think about integrity, especially, I feel like this is, I feel like compassion, I feel like respect. I think that these things, they're modeled to us. I think that we, for the most part in society, we're able to understand and practice these things a lot better. But I feel like the integrity component 
is one of the biggest aspects of or traits that's assailed in our modern society. And the reason for that is I think that as our lives become more and more lived online and essentially every, whether it's LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram or TikTok, these things essentially become avatars of ourselves. And so when I think about integrity is how much overlap is there between the person that you're presenting and the person that you are in private? And I've systematically had love-hate relationships and turned off most social media, except for basically just LinkedIn. But I even check myself on that, like how much integrity am I having on what I'm putting out there? And because ultimately people are reacting to who they think you are, not who you actually are. So if you have that, nobody can keep you honest about that except for yourself. But I really like those four a lot. Well, Matt, let's talk about what you do professionally. You work for Gartner. You work in the corporate social responsibility space. I think a lot of people will have heard of corporate social responsibility, but some may not know what it is. Can you define what it is? Sure. Corporate social responsibility or CSR is essentially the intersection between business goals and community impact and employee engagement. So you think about any, if you think about a company and you were to imagine that it was a person living in a community, what sort of citizen would they be? Would that person care about the quality of the environment? Would they care about the education of the kids? Would they care about individuals, whether it's elderly or disabled who are unable to get out of their homes? Would they care about the health of small businesses? Would they care about all these aspects of vitality and thriving that should be parts of a community? This is what corporate citizenship is, both on a local, national, and international level. Now, of course, corporations aren't people. They're collections of sometimes hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people worldwide. And so the idea of corporate citizenship is to take these values, which back when we were all in offices might have been like little plaque on the break room wall and to really bring them to life. And CSR, corporate social responsibility is about more than just making grants, corporate foundations and volunteerism. It's about solving problems. And so internally, the problems that it can solve when it's at its best, corporate social responsibility can help increase employee engagement, can make people feel like they're coming to work every day to do something more than just earn a pay. CSR is a beautiful way to actually bring to life the goals of DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. It brings, it's a way to celebrate people's different interests and backgrounds and the different types of charities and causes that they're excited about. Externally, it can also help to attract clients. It can attract really great talent by showing the values of the company in a way that you can't just say. So a recruiter can go out and say, the values of our company are X, Y, and Z. Or the recruiter can tell a story and say, one of our big initiatives is that we support Gift of the Givers in South Africa, which focuses on giving people emergency food and education whose lives have been destroyed by natural disasters. That story is far more impactful than a list or a talk track. And so I think CSR is giving the story an authentic story for companies, for employees, and for their clients to tell. Like, how cool is it that when you and I fly our favorite airline, whatever that may be, during Breast Cancer Awareness Month, we're sitting there and our little cup of water comes and there's a pink ribbon on there. And we know that just by flying that airline, that our ticket is helping to support breast cancer awareness and research. And the same thing is true with all different types of corporate social responsibility. It's really saying, our company is about more than just making a profit, but we want to show that our people 
are actually manifesting something a betterment in the world, whether it's socially or environmentally. We're recording this on September 16th, 2022. The big news yesterday, I'm, I'm assuming you're aware of this, is that the Patagonia founder, I'll mispronounce his name, but I'll take a stab at it, Yvonne Chenard, has donated his shares of the company and put it in a trust to combat climate change. I'm assuming this is an example of corporate social responsibility, and I love your your take on that. What did you think when you saw that news? I wish there was a podcast emoji we could push out right now to all the listeners to show them my goosebumps on my arm, because that's what this story gives me. I read that yesterday, and I was... My reaction was, first of all, he said, what we're doing for to combat climate change is not enough. He even admits that his gift is still not enough. And yet he's doing it anyways, because by him taking a lead in this space, you and I don't have billions of dollars to give, but we can do our part, whether it's financially with our attention with our awareness, with the way that we amplify these messages, with the way that we teach our children about it and making this, he's really put a stake in the ground and saying that this is of personal, global and corporate importance. And it is a, it's an incredibly powerful message that he's sent by example and a recognition that just Mackenzie Bezos and Melinda Gates, these are women also who recognize you can't take this money with you. Whatever wealth we have, big or small, like we have an opportunity to to really move the needle. I know it doesn't seem like it, but I think that the, one of the biggest opportunities for hope in the United States was the recent legislation around climate change and how to combat that. And I think that this is this recent um, acknowledgement by the by the gift by the um, founder of Patagonia is very in line with what I believe is a national and global trend towards taking this seriously. I had a very similar reaction. I was really excited about it. And in terms of leadership, what a gesture that is. And who knows how much longer he's going to live. He's 86, but he's a really active guy. And But just to say, this is what we're doing right now. And at a very critical time in this fight against climate change, I think you probably have addressed why you're dedicating your professional life to corporate social responsibility. And it really dovetails into your volunteer work. And maybe you want to add something about the difference you think that it's making at Gartner. Yeah, I am really privileged for the opportunity to do this work full time. It's something that I've always enjoyed the intersection of organizational goals and community impact. I was able to do it at the University of Minnesota in the Women's Cancer Center. I was able to do it at Court Jensen, getting to help start a corporate foundation dedicated to veterans, some other CSR departments for other for-profit companies. This work is, I never think about it as leaving my legacy, but I realize that I want everything I do to pass the bus test. The bus test is if Matt gets hit by a bus tomorrow, is his work going to continue on? And so when I think about CSR, I think about CSR as leadership. And so how are we increasing the leadership fluency and capacity of organizations so that these individuals, whether we're encouraging them to go volunteer on nonprofit boards or whatever other outlet it is for volunteers, and that this passion will then be telegraphed and that they will then pass it on to others, where one person's story can influence 10 more. And that's where I think the real excitement of waking up every day 
is for me is being able to amplify that excitement and watch these people in turn amplify it across their teams around the globe. How do you feel your work is influencing leaders at Gartner? Well, I have to tell you, I think our Gartner leaders are doing a fantastic job of making sure that social and environmental issues are at the forefront of our corporate objectives. I think that everybody at Gartner is a leader. And so what I get to do in my work is to create more avenues for awareness where they can realize that their leadership skills can be used not just in service of each other, but also in service of the communities where we live and work. And so for me to take stories, so some of our associates in the Middle East, maybe they've really found this incredible opportunity to help children with disabilities. And by amplifying that story in other parts of the globe, maybe team members in Australia might find something similar that that sparks their passion. Or we've got somebody in Singapore who's going and taking care of people that are can't get out of their homes and that's picked up by somebody in Brazil. So it's really not about being advice driven. It's about being curiosity led. So by me interacting with people and being really open and interested about what it is that they're doing, this is how I interact with leaders all the time. I'm asking them what they and their teams, if they have teams, what is it that gets them excited? And then how can we bring that back and find a place where people can be seen and heard for the fullness of who they are outside of what their day job is? Let's talk about mental health for a moment, because when I look at you, I think, you know, this this man has the perfect life. You're a great looking guy. You're amazing personality. You create great relationships. Professionally, you're accomplished. You travel all around the world. I would never have thought that you struggled with mental health challenges. But the last time we talked, you mentioned that you were having some struggles. And I think you said something to the effect of you weren't going to do something destructive, but you could sense that you were entering that stage. And the the first question, I guess, is how do you know that? And uh, the second thing is, I guess, a comment, which is thank you for saying that because I think it's incredibly brave. And I think I would love more people to be as open and honest about that because there's a stigma about admitting that you may be struggling mentally. You know, you don't just wake up one day and say to yourself, I think I'm struggling with a generalized anxiety disorder, or I think I'm depressed. There is a whole sequence of events and components of your body and mind, which all slowly dysregulate. And so what I experienced was in the remote work environment, it was really easy to push my hours earlier and earlier in the day and later at night. And I was actually filling my plate with more and more things. There was nobody externally that was putting pressure on me to do these things. I want to make sure that this was all stuff I was taking on myself and probably with a badge of honor, look how much I'm accomplishing. I'm getting all this stuff done. I'm moving all these projects forward and especially working in corporate social responsibility and then my volunteer work. It just feels like really good use of my time and, and these long days, which I was creating. But I have to tell you the first, the first hat to drop was sleep. And so as my sleep started getting less quality and of lesser durations, my stress level the next days would go up. And when my stress level the next day would go up, my frequency that I'd get exercise to release that stress would go down. And when my exercise went down, I started eating poorly. And so then I would start sleeping worse and then my insomnia would start getting even more elevated. And so minutes and hours of stress that I would sometimes experience would turn in days 
turning into weeks should be a gigantic red flag and weeks of survival mode turning into months is an absolute catastrophe waiting to happen. And that's where I was at. I realized that my whole body and mind was dysregulated. I was on edge. I wasn't taking care of myself. You talk about self-care, that phrase wasn't even in my mind. And I knew that I was nosediving for the ground. And so that was essentially what I told you was the subject line to my doctor. I said, this is urgent, but not in crisis and in parentheses in my own mind yet. And it was some years ago that I had gone through this before and I knew what the stages and symptoms were. So I was able to not quickly enough hit the eject button, but to hit pause when I saw and felt what this was like, when I felt this kind of unraveling of wellness, of health, of stability. You think about all the things that make us resilient. These things are internal things and things that we do for ourselves, like making sure we sleep enough, eat enough, regulate the electricity in our brains, as a good friend of mine at work says, and having healthy relationships. These are all things that make us resilient and help us to bend and to flex through all of these different societal traumas. When we lose our resilience, we break. And that moment where I realized I was losing my resilience was the moment I realized I was on the edge of breaking. Now, when we break or we're about to break or we've sprained something, it's really easy for us to go into a doctor and you and I can sit down with our GP and be like, here's the deal, broke my leg. We can both look at it and be like, yep, broken leg. We can see it empirically on an x-ray. We know what the path is. We know it's either surgery or a cast and a brace and there's a path for healing, but it's really different when it's your brain. And the struggle is we don't have the language to be able to articulate what's going on. Sometimes we don't even know. And we have a really difficult time because of societal shame around mental health, even admitting that we're going through a struggle. Like we feel, especially as men, that we should be tough enough that we should just be able to get through it and just kind of power through. And this is one of the most devastating things that we can do is to push it under the rug. What two or three things do you do to self-manage or care for yourself? If you don't do these things, bad things can happen. I would say that sleep is number one. I know it sounds so silly and like kindergartners learn how to take a nap. But if I don't do this, I am I'm setting myself up for a whole chain reaction. Now, a couple bad nights sleep are not going to send me off, put me on the edge. But this is a really fundamental aspect of self-care. The other thing is to not isolate. It is really easy, especially since I have moved to many different countries in my life and many different US cities. I'm really intentional about investing in my friendships, like with you and Michelle and the girls, friends back home in Oregon or Egypt or Australia, family in New Zealand. And in the UK, these are relationships that I invest in because I know that they add to my resilience and insulate me from those rough days that we all have. So those are two big things. Third thing is I've had to admit that I can't do it all. Like I, at the beginning of this year, I was pursuing a double doctorate and I was like, had this crazy global job and I was like on two boards and there was a whole bunch of other activities that I was doing and I had to scale back and I had to say that these things are not worth trading my mental health. And that was really humbling because I wanted to believe that I could be superhero and do everything. But by scaling back, I'm actually enjoying everything a lot more. 
And it's one of the biggest gifts I've given myself. This is the insight that I had, which was I've spent 20 years doing disaster relief, showing up on people's worst days, people, complete strangers on other parts of the world. What I was called to do recently was to show up for myself when I was in a time of need. And that was one of the most challenging service experiences I've ever had. One of the most popular, I think it's probably the most popular episode that we've ever done of 12 Geniuses is with Major Lauren Serrano of the U.S. Marine Corps. And she talked about a suicide among the Marines she was leading. And we talked about mental health and identification of mental health. And she also said that the Marine who took his life uh, showed no signs. It l- looked like he had the world by the tail, so much runway in front of him. He was just in his 20s. And there are lots of leaders who are managing people, leading people who may be in a mental health crisis. What advice do you have for these leaders to help them identify when someone may be struggling? I would say when you see something that's out of the ordinary, like when you have a high performing member of your team who suddenly like lashes out or is you just see something really uncharacteristic, don't just sweep it aside. Make sure to hold space in a non-judgmental in a private setting and just check in with them. It's their job to to share if if there's anything they need, if they need a little bit of space. Make sure to lead by example. Make sure to take your vacation time and let people know that you will be unavailable by text, by phone, by email. This isn't a vacation where I'm going to be sitting on the beach with my laptop uh, responding to, to people's crises like the world is not going to end so make sure to lead by example make sure to hold space for people and to be attentive and i think to really i would welcome opportunities whether you're in a big organization small for-profit or non-profit where you invite conversations about mental health and it could be somebody from the outside it could be from any number of outside organizations but September Suicide um, Awareness and Prevention Month, this is a really easy time for us to be talking about mental health issues and mental health crises in a way that, that equips people with the tools they need to self-identify and get help without judged or, um, or feeling they're broken. And th- that's the other like one like big, huge asterisk I'd like to put on this whole conversation is that I learned that depression is really your body and mind's way of withdrawing support from whatever you're doing. So for me, it was this unsustainable pace of life. I was just rocketing through every single day, just relentless. And my body was going to have nothing, none of it. So if I didn't slow things down on my own, it was going to check me out. And that's essentially what was happening as things were starting to shut down, diet, sleep, my ability to connect interpersonally. So use whatever it is, whether you you feel like it's depression or anxiety or whatever, as a signpost to indicate something to you that you need to learn and pay attention to in your life and to change and to grow from. I know I've told you this before, the world needs you. Matt Gerber, thank you for your time and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses and thanks to Inspire Software for sponsoring this week's episode. Next week, I talk with Janae Sergio. When she was 16 years old, Janae was dropped off at a Los Angeles homeless shelter. 
Realizing that no one was coming to rescue her, she decided to become her own hero as she navigated the dangers of the streets. 20 years later, Janae is using her platform and inspiring story of resilience to help others become heroes themselves. Thanks to Richard Jonathan J. Tony and the rest of the team at GL Pro in London for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening and thank you for being a genius.